Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you, worship team. Great job. I, uh, it's been a long time that we've had a volunteer-only worship team. I don't, some of you guys don't know this, but <clears throat> the, the worship team is not paid staff. They're volunteer. And uh, I was reminded, um, I got to do a little bit of homeschooling from work the other day, and so I gave the kids an assignment. And their assignment was to do Bible time. And so they looked up a Mark Carter sermon from 2018 and uh, watched that sermon. And they said, and dad, you sang. And I, that's part of my life that I blocked out of my memory. <laughs> One of the most painful seasons and most stretching and growing seasons of life was uh, leading worship up here. And so Rob and Sheila and, uh, and Josh and I had each taken, I guess it was a worship leader's Sunday all together. And We'd each sang a song, and so uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, we're really blessed. Like we have, uh, we have a talented group of people serving, either full-time or part-time or as lay ministers, and uh, we should be very thankful for that. And then I would challenge some of you <clears throat> who haven't been stretched or grown in a while uh, to find a place to be uncomfortable here at Fairway, and there are lots of opportunities to serve. And so if you see someone serving or working and you think they probably have a place here doing something, ask them. Uh, we would be glad to put you in somewhere doing something. Um, and that kind of goes into what we're going to talk about this morning. We'll be in Philippians. If you want to, you can turn to Philippians 1. The last time I preached, I uh, preached on Philippians 1.27 through about 32-ish. And so I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning. Scott is out this morning. And I want you to know a lot of people will be like, well, how's Scott doing? How's Scott doing? How's Scott doing? Just keep him on your prayer list. This is not a, uh, this is not a he, he gets treated and, and done type of situation. He just has a different situation than we do, than the majority of us do. And so I would just say keep him in your prayers and thank you for asking. Uh, but he's out this morning. And so I'm filling in, and when I fill in, I think I'm just going to go through Philippians. David, I, you're going through 2 Peter, is that correct? So we'll see how Romans, Philippians, and 2 Peter all blend in together. <clears throat> you know, a couple of the same author, Paul uh, writing Philippians and Romans and then Peter, but it's all around the same time. <clears throat> I believe Nero was the, uh, was the ruler of Rome at the time, so uh, we'll see how these fit together, but... I'm going to start back at the beginning and do a little bit of a recap. <clears throat> so Philippians is an interesting book. I think it relates to us uh, as Americans or citizens of a country here in uh, modern times. <clears throat> but Paul is kind of making a plea to the Philippians, realizing that they are citizens of Philippi, and that also they've been given Roman citizenship, but also they're citizens of heaven. So he starts there, and then he just goes through and he makes his plea throughout the book of Philippians. So, <clears throat> a view through the lens of citizenship and fellowship. Citizenship, the definition is legal status of being a citizen of a country and requires fulfillment of duties and responsibilities that come with being a member of that community. And we'll talk about that more today. And then also, Fellowship uh, in Philippians, a sharing of common interests, goals, experiences, or views. And we'll go into that later. Today, I really want to focus on citizens, citizenship. Another uh, definition or call out to citizenship 
for the purposes here, can, it can encompass familial relationship through adoption as children, as well as discipleship, sainthood, and priesthood. So just really quickly, a little bit of history of Philippi. <clears throat> you may or may not know, Philippi was a Roman outpost. The leading, city, excuse me, the leading city of the Macedonian districts established by the Romans. We'll pull it together here. The citizens of Philippi were considered Roman citizens, and they were very proud of this status. And I think if you'll listen, you will hear this, this patriotism, nationalism theme come through in Philippians as well. The Romans had decided to honor the Philippians in this way because the Philippian citizens had helped Octavian, later known as Augustus Caesar, and Mark Antony in their battle against Brutus and Cassius the assassins of Julius Caesar in 42 B.C. Years later, in about 30 B.C., they helped Octavian again when he went to battle against Mark Antony. The Philippian pride and allegiance. The Philippians were proud of the favor and beneficence they had received from the Roman emperor. It's likely that this patriotism put pressure on the Christians in Philippi. Paul's friends in Philippi were probably forced to praise the Roman gods in the Philippian civic ceremonies. They were probably also expected to refer to Nero, the reigning Caesar at the time, as Lord and Savior. The Philippians, of course, had an allegiance to another Savior and Lord who had a status far above that of Nero. So a little bit of background here. Now you can see how this would be in conflict, you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's erect this gold statue, and then when we blow the trumpets or whatever, they were, whatever instrument they had, everybody is to bow down. Same concept here, except this was a man. <clears throat> so you can imagine when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, we have a conflict in Philippi. And they have enjoyed really nice amenities of being Roman citizens in Philippi. Well, let's go to the establishment, not just of the city, but the church. So it was founded by the Apostle Paul during his second missionary journey around 49 to 50 AD. Obviously, it was in Philippi, which was a leading city. The founding members were Lydia, a merchant, and her household. And, and a more dramatic, a dramatic convert, the jailer, which you may remember, who was going to take his own life, and Paul calls out, wait, wait, we're all here. He becomes saved, as well as his household, among others, were the first converts. Uh, the church dynamics, it was known for its strong partnership with Paul in spreading the gospel, and it was a, a, a source of support for Paul during his missionary journeys. Paul's connection to the church was that he maintained a close relationship with the Philippians, even writing a letter, the book that we're going through, to express gratitude for their partnership in the gospel and to address various concerns, which he did often when he wrote a letter to one of the churches. Uh, the themes in uh, Philippians, joy, unity, humility, and perseverance amidst trials. And then the challenges that they faced... The church encountered opposition and persecution for their faith, as evidenced by Paul's encouragement to stand firm in the face of opposition. And the opposition is, are you going to do the things that are required of you as a Roman citizen? Are you going to 
do the things that are required of you as a citizen of heaven. So their identity that we want to talk about this morning is their identity in the kingdom as a citizen of heaven. But I want to ask a question real quick before we get started. Where is the line drawn between wills, for instance? Where's the line drawn between the will of a parent and a child? And where's the line drawn between the will of a husband and a wife? And ultimately and finally for us who are believers, where's the line drawn between God and the believer? So the, the relationship between a parent and a child, as far as will is related to will, begins with extreme authority. That child is fully and totally dependent upon the parent for everything. And the child's really, really small and easy to direct. So it begins with extreme authority and then hopefully, prayerfully, subsequent submission by that child to the parent, which is released over time. You've probably heard the illustration of kids when they're really little have very narrow guardrails. They have very little room to roam within. But then as they get older, those guardrails get wider and wider and the child is able to roam more and more freely. Until, until the authority of that parent really is sort of relinquished, right? When they're set free to go live in the world. What about husband and wife? And this is uh, not one that starts out as, in as easily uh, explainable as the parent and child relationship, but it begins who knows where. Probably, uh, you know that we all bring things into a marriage. We all bring our own mindset, our own upbringing. We're all the way we are because of where we came from. We come in and who knows where it starts, but hopefully it moves toward love and respect and a mutual submission. So it's a picture of a triangle in a Christian relationship. You have the husband and you have the wife and you have God at the top and they're moving toward God at the same time they're becoming closer to each other. You see how that works in the pyramid? Hopefully it starts somewhere that's not right and over time in a love relationship under the authority of Christ, that love and respect and mutual submission continues to be worked out. Paul calls it a mystery. And then we have God and the believer, which again, the relationship with Christ begins who knows where. Where'd you come from? What, what do you have going on that God needs to get in there and untangle and correct and fix and shine light on and heal? Be, it begins who knows where with, with I would say, perceived authority, because we know that we have to submit to Christ in order to be saved. But we may not understand what that authority really means ultimately. So with some sort of perceived authority and some, some feeble submission that moves toward known authority and understood authority, hopefully we're moving toward complete submission. Where does our will end and God's begin or vice versa? I'll see if I can snap those papers up every time for effect. So Paul sets the stage here. The identity of the, the uh, Philippian believers is that of bondservants and saints, as we think about will. So we'll just read Philippians 1, 1 and 2 real quick. 
Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, so glad that he included them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, it's very interesting that he identifies, he and Timothy, the leaders of the church as bondservants. And he's making a point there because we are all bondservants. If Paul and Timothy are bondservants, my gosh, the rest of us are bondservants as well. So what is a bondservant? Uh, literally a bond slave without any ownership rights of their own. And I want to read to you from uh, Keller and from D.A. Carson. And I want, to, I want us to just to talk about and think about slavery just for a second, okay? Because what we saw modeled in America is not necessarily what the Bible is talking about when it talks about slavery. And I think it's worth just, just for a second, let's just hear what they have to say. From Keller, in the ancient world, there were many, many slaveries. There's good evidence that much of slavery was very harsh and brutal. And we, we've seen examples of that. But there's also lots of evidence that many slaves were not treated like African slaves would be, but lived normal lives and were paid the going wage, but were not allowed to quit or change employers and were in slavery an average of about 10 years. Prisoners of war often became slaves and men could be sentenced to being galley slaves for crimes, a person could become a slave for a set period of time in order to work off debts because there was no such thing as bankruptcy in ancient times, which we have, debt forgiveness. Often the result was an indentured servanthood for years until the debts were paid. To our surprise, slaves could own slaves and many slaves were doctors, professors, administrators, and civil servants. Now I want to tell you and be clear, we're talking about slavery during biblical times. There were, there were obviously, because man is evil, there were terrible examples of slavery in biblical times, but there was also the type of slavery that was to the benefit of the slave. See Andrew T. Lincoln's discussion of ancient slavery. In his survey, Lincoln says that no one in ancient times could conceive of an economic or labor structure without it. While there were brutal forms of slavery, the concept indentured labor in which the laborer was not free to market his skills to other employers was considered a given. Quoting another scholar, he writes that this was so accepted, one cannot correctly speak of the slave problem in antiquity. In other words, no one, not even slaves, thought the whole institution should be abolished. Some people would give themselves over to slavery in order to provide for their families. They were paid a wage, okay? And why would I want to talk about this? Because I want you to know that God is not an evil, brutal, harsh slave master. He is kind. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And then he experienced it for us, with us. And then this from Carson. Please understand me. I'm not trying to romanticize slavery in any way. However, in Roman times, there were menial labor, laborers who were slaves 
And there were also others who were the equivalent of distinguished PhDs who were teaching families. And there was no association of a particular race with slavery. In American slavery, though, all blacks and only blacks were slaves. That was one of the peculiar horrors of it, and it generated an unfair sense of black inferiority that many of us continue to fight to this day. Now let's look at the Bible. In Jewish society, under the law, everyone was to be freed every jubilee. In other words, there was a slavery liberation every seventh year. Whether or not things actually worked out that way, this was nevertheless what God said, and this was the framework in which Jesus was brought up. But you have to keep your eye on Jesus' mission. Essentially, he did not come to overturn the Roman economic system, which included slavery. He came to free men and women from their sins. Problem number one. Priority number one. And here's my point. What his message does is transform people so that they begin to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. Naturally, that has an impact on the idea of slavery. We will never, never be rid of persecution and suffering by man until the love of Christ is all in all. So the Philippians were... And we are, according to Paul, in the general sense of being owned by God, that is, slaves in chains. And we are slaves in the sense of service to God and others, that is, servants of Christ. Service to God and service to others, servants of Christ. In other words, we are owned by God for God's purposes, bond slaves, bond servants. So if we're owned by God for God's purposes, where do I end and where does he begin? Isn't, the, isn't that a good question? Don't you think that's appropriate? So I love this game, agree or disagree, and you don't have to answer. Everyone is a slave to something. Everyone's a slave to something. So this is ironic, but the first thing that came to mind was slave to the grind. Have you heard that saying before? Well, I tried to look it up because I thought, oh, this must be a common saying. Really, everything that you look up is a reference to Skid Row, the rock band from the 80s. And you're going to think, ah, oh, he threw that in on purpose because it's got to be an 80s band. Every time Jeremy preaches, he has to quote some 80s band. And that is not the case. I really thought, oh, this must be common, and it's not. But it comes from keep your nose to the grindstone, or specifically, it's talking about walking at the grind mill that would grind up cereal grains, a slave to the grind. And I've talked about this here before. It's been a long time, but it reminds me of Conan. If you've seen Conan, another great 80s call out with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Basically, they put him at the grindstone when he's really little, and it, instead of beating him down, it makes him stronger. Everyone is a slave to something. You could be a slave to work. You could be a slave to money. You could be a slave to food. You could be a slave to drink. You could be a slave to status. You could be a slave to what? That we just go on and on. Appearance.
Let me read you this. Romans 6, 15 through 22. What then, Paul says, are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one who you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves of it to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. And we could talk about the things that we see and we struggle with and strive with on earth whether it's relationships or material possessions, but we also need to look spiritually at are we slaves of God or slaves to ourselves? Are we slaves of sin or are we slaves to righteousness? In Christ, if you're free, you're a bondservant. And if you're a slave, you're a bondservant. It's a paradox. A slave is free. Free from sin <laughs> to be a slave to righteousness. Only in Christ can you be a slave and free at the same time. You are freed from sin and the bondage and the destruction and the devastation that it creates. And the havoc that it wreaks. And you are freed to righteousness. And freed to love. And live. And enjoy. And experience. Only as a slave of Christ. Can we fully maximize this life that we've been given. Galatians 2. 19 through 20. Typically just read 20. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's another, um, there's another expression of bond slave. I want to read it to you from Alfred Barnes. He says that this word expresses the condition of one who has a master, which we would not be surprised by, or who is at the control of another. 
It is often, however, applied to courtiers or the officers that serve under a king. Because in an Eastern monarchy, the relation of an absolute king to his courtiers corresponded nearly to that of a master and a slave. Thus, the word is expressive of dignity and honor. And the servants of a king denote officers of a high rank and station. Only in Christ can a slave be of high rank and station as well. And so I would ask you again, as slaves under the control of a master, where do I end and where does God begin? Where do you end and where does God begin? And I would just make this statement. We must end so that he can begin. And it happens over and over and over and over again. This ending and beginning. This dying to the flesh so that we can live. This letting him zero in on a spot, a site of infection so that it can be healed or cut out and removed must happen over and over again. We must end so that he can begin. First thing that he says is that we're bond slaves. And then secondly, speaking of officers and high-ranking people, he calls them saints. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament translation of saints is the elect, or they're called out as my people, or a holy nation. In the New Testament, they're known as God's holy people. From John Piper, Paul calls Christians saints, that is, holy ones, consecrated ones, set apart ones, being made holy ones, saved, set apart for God, walking in the light. He calls Christian saints 40 times in his letters, but he virtually never uses the noun sinner to describe Christians. And this from Spurgeon. Saints are sinners still, but sinners who are justified, forgiven, and accepted through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon often stressed the biblical idea that those who follow Christ are considered saints not because of their perfection, but because of their relationship with Jesus. He believed that despite being imperfect and still struggling with sin, believers are regarded as saints in God's eyes through the grace and justification found in Jesus Christ. And so just as the Philippians were identified as Roman citizens because of their citizenship of Philippi. We are considered saints because of our relationship and proximity to Christ. The Philippians were granted Roman citizenship because of their location. And we are granted citizenship in the kingdom of heaven because of our proximity and our relationship to Christ. So I want to point out that a lot of these words that Piper used, holy ones, consecrated ones, set apart ones, being made holy ones, 
is very similar to God. God is also separate and apart. He's known to be sacred and holy. Holy, another definition of holy is otherworldly, as well as separate. He's also separated from human infirmity, impurity, and sin. So we, the saints, are both like God, and at the same time, we're different from the world. So our status as saints. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. <clears throat> as obedient children, do not become conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So what is he saying here? Be holy equals one, be different from the world, and two, be like God. In the old covenant, according to the law, right? Leviticus eleven forty four. for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. He's never changed that message. Be saints, be consecrated, be holy, be separate. And in the new covenant, according to grace, Romans 8, 1, again from Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and then followed up with Colossians 1, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. Because this was done, Paul can refer to the Philippians as saints or citizens of heaven. And God says to us, ultimately, you are because I am. Once you've come to a realization of your sin and your need for salvation from it and your need from, for forgiveness... And once you come to the place of repentance to turn away from those things, and once you come to the place of acceptance of Christ and submission to his lordship, you become a saint. Because he is and because he did, you are. So, servants, saints, or sons. Yes. To all three. We are servants because we're purchased by his blood. But we have indentured ourselves to him because we couldn't pay the debt and we don't want to leave his house or his service anyway. I'm going to say that again. First of all, we're servants because we're purchased by his blood. He bought us. He paid for us. But then the beauty of Christianity is that we gladly indenture ourselves to him. Because hopefully you've come out of slavery to the world. And you know how terrible a master the world is. And how brutal the world is. 
and how deceitful the world is. And so when you come under the Lordship of Christ, we gladly indenture ourselves to him. He bought us, we're his, and at the same time we indenture ourselves to him because we couldn't pay the debt, and then we don't want to leave. And I will tell you this, I feel like I've lived two lives, and I say this often, I never, ever, ever want to go back to the old slave master that I lived under. Never. And so I've indentured myself to him. Parent to child, husband to wife, where does his will end and ours begin and vice versa? As it relates to being a servant. And then our, our status. We're saints because we've been covered in his blood, taking away our infirmity and our impurity, thus separating us from the world around us. We're sons and daughters because he's adopted us in the same way he justified us through his blood, making us descendants of Abraham as prophesied in Genesis. So we're saints because he he has stripped us of the sin debt and paid it for us and cleansed us. And then we're also saints because he adopted us into his family as heirs of the throne. And then he says, Paul says, grace at the end of this little uh, intro, grace and peace to you. And once we have the servanthood down and once we understand our status, then we get to experience grace and peace. But it starts there. Once we can live a life knowing, I keep messing up, but thank you, Lord, that you've forgiven me. And I walk in a love relationship, seeking forgiveness, turning away from sin, and turning to him to live toward righteousness, we experience grace and peace. And once we understand that our our responsibility is to be his, his servants and to do his work and to follow his lead and his calling and his instruction, we experience grace and peace. So it comes down to rights and responsibilities. Rights as a citizen, what? Sorry, we could, have, we could have learned what Siri found, but I don't know that it, I don't know what it applied. It comes down to rights and responsibilities. <clears throat> Let me read this to you. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. Laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness." the best version of what man could do to do what God did. Do you agree that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights 
Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Governments try, he got it right. If you believe that and you're looking for it, it's only found here. At a, as a citizen of heaven and a servant of Christ. It's only found here. The interesting thing is that we have this, this competing this competing dual citizenship thing going on like the Philippians did. They were, they were Jews, but they were Romans. And then at some point, they were Romans, but they were Christians. So really quickly, <clears throat> let's look at mankind. There is citizenship. There's the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. Which one are you a member of? Which one are you a citizen of? And then we could look at our country in particular. We could look at our own situation. Citizen of the United States of America versus being a citizen of, of America. And where does our American citizenship end and our citizenship in heaven begin and vice versa? And what is the, what is the role there? What is the contrast between the two? What is the relationship between the two? And then as believers, let's consider our status as saints. Now, we have rights as American citizens, right? We have rights, freedom of speech, the right to bear arms. We have a military that protects us. Many, many, many freedoms and liberties and rights that we have here. And then we have rights as citizens of heaven. Again, we're heirs to the throne. We are forgiven our sin debt and we don't pay it. We've been given status. And then what about bond servants? Just as we have rights as American citizens, we also have responsibilities, don't we? We're expected to obey the law. Um, we're expected to participate and vote. We're expected to engage. And then we have responsibilities as citizens of heaven. And so I would end here. The worship team, if you want to go ahead and come back up. with this. This is a John Maxwell principle. You've probably heard it before, but <clears throat> let me set it up like this. As citizens of heaven, we have rights and we have responsibilities just the same as we do being citizens of the United States or any country for that matter. And I would say this too, um, I totally agree with John Maxwell, as responsibility increases, our rights decrease. Now, how does that work? As our responsibility increases, our rights decrease. And I would say that the further you walk with Christ and the more that you understand, the more you will see your responsibility as a believer in Christ. And the longer that you walk with him, you'll start to understand also that your rights to rule your life and to make your own decisions absent of God or absent of the body of Christ decrease. 
And I think that you would agree with this principle practically too. Your right to eat your own meal and sleep through the night decreases significantly when you have a baby. When you have the responsibility of a child, your right to your own life decreases significantly. When you have a job, your right to sleep in, to take time off whenever you want, to do whatever you want with the rest of your day decreases significantly. As your responsibility increases, your rights decrease. And it's the same as citizens of heaven. But ultimately, it leads to grace and peace. It's what we're looking for. So, this morning, to summarize Paul... Because you've been given this great reward and this great citizenship and this great status, would you consider and can we consider together also what it means to be a slave and what our responsibilities are as bond slaves, as servants of Christ? Will you pray with me?